0: The naked people are coming, man, and and I better start looking at all corners of my house because there's going to be T&A and dong all over. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 6, Hereditary, with special guest Bob Pastorella.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back. My name is Jeremiah Bannister. And
0: I am Chad Lutsky.
1: And together, we are the Paleo Cheese Podcast that tosses film onto the Chase Lounge to discuss and psychoanalyze and every once in a while to point and laugh at. And today, Chad, we are accompanied by somebody here in the, uh, in the chat room
0: with us. Yes, Mr. Bob Pastorella. He is the author of Mojo Rising, and he is one of the two co-hosts in This Is Horror, probably my favorite podcast. They give the, the world's best uh, interviews by far. Very in-depth, uh, very nice approach. And so we asked Bob to come on and talk about Hereditary with us because I already knew he was a big fan <laughs> and he loves film, good music, and I thought it would make for a great discussion. So welcome, Bob.
2: Hey, thank you. And thank you for the kind words about the podcast. I'm uh, really c- glad to be here and uh, we'll be talking about a film that I really, really enjoy.
0: Yeah. Actually, I, one of my books was nominated for a This Is Horror Award, uh, not this year, but the, or not this last one, but the one before that with Out Behind the Barn. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Betty Rocksteady ended up taking the, the trophy.
1: It's, it, I was gonna say it's a conflict of interest, but you've got this grudge thing going now, for sure. Like deep <laughs> d- deep down inside, you're like Bob. I'm I brought you on to rake you over the coals, buddy. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, we're gonna we're probably for this year we're running like really behind, like everything else. But I think this week we're gonna have uh this well this week this first week of May we're gonna have the uh the announcement of the short list. This is completely. People who listen to to the podcast, who read the website, it's all of their votes that are going to pick. So we literally have nothing, you know, to do other yeah. than, than weeding out some nominations that may not have made it. It's just really a novella. Uh, oops, wait, this was published in two thousand eighteen. Mm-hmm. It barely made the mark. So you know, that's that's the kind of housekeeping that me and Michael do. Other than that, it's it's all reader it's all it's all fans whenever i uh,
0: send in my nominations under for the podcast you guys had a podcast category and i yeah. always put i always put uh sorry man but this is horror that's that's what i nominate and i know you guys aren't <laughs> going to worry yourselves but it's the truth i mean i like uh the horror show with Brian keen that's another that's another good one i really like the uh, even I, I think it's great that the first time a, a, a guest is on you guys always ask the same question Uh, for every guest, Mm -hmm. but it produced, you know, just vast differently answers.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, we've had, uh, to me, I guess the most harrowing account was John skip, you know, because we, we, we asked about early life lessons, you know, what, what what are some of the things that you learned in life? Mm -hmm. And John took us from his early childhood. Can he grew up in Guatemala during a a a a massive war (laughs) and uh and he remembers that and he he took us down that path and and of course you know it's john skip you know if you've ever had a chance to meet him or listen to him or anything like that Mm -hmm. uh he could talk and you and you listen to what he has to say because he's, he's very dynamic yeah. He took us on this ride for about 10-15 minutes, and we were like, holy shit, man. <laughs> wow. I don't think anybody can top this. It's it's amazing how that question brings out so many different answers. And there's and there, it's also amazing is there's so many similarities too. Mm-hmm. Uh we found a lot of writers that have uh, actually you know gotten into it because of film. You know, they're yeah. they they were not necessarily influenced by by reading when they were young, they were influenced by watching movies and that's their outlet is, is actually getting the words out on the page.
0: Mm So
2: I always find that, you know, quite fascinating. I I, I'm kind of a hybrid, you know, I, I, I started reading at an early age and started watching movies. I shouldn't have at a very early age. So (laughs) it affected me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 It's so uh,
1: funny. uh, I, I know it's a little bit off topic and hearkening back, but when you were talking about, how much you love the podcast, you know, and familiarizing myself with with who you are, Bob, and, and listening to the way you talk about different things. I thought, man, I said, I can understand why he would love this podcast. But when he when he admitted to to nominating you every year and saying, well, obviously, you're not going to pick yourself or anything. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that that movie. Cool Cat Saves the Kids. Mm-mm. Um, it's, it's, well, I'm, I'm unsurprised by this. <laughs> it is absolutely terrible. And, but, but the thing is <laughs> they ended up having this, uh, this, this award show and on the award show, it was something about cannabis, like the cannabis film award thing. And it, it's amazing. Cause the guy that, that put it together is a dude who does all these kid movies and stuff for cool cat, but cool cat won, And so <laughs> it was one of those things. I know it's totally random, man, but as soon as you said that, this, this image of cool cat just popped in my head.
2: It makes sense because I mean, they'll let us. Michael will let me and and Kev Harrison and Thomas Joyce and the other writers of the, of the website. We can vote, so we we have a say. He says because you you are listeners, just because you know you 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 do have a vote in this. The only thing that he won't let us do is anything that's like a conflict of interest. We can't like you know. Nominate our own work, you know, (laughs) like that, you know. But it's, uh, you know, and and that makes sense. And we don't want to be the cool cat, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We want to be the the cool (laughs) cats but not not that cool. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Oh my gosh! Speaking of cats, I had a dog once (laughs) uh, named uh, Mister Mojo Rising. Like All right, you, know, you get the book Mojo Rising. Yeah, a little black pug.
2: Man, the way that that whole thing came about was just—I don't know. It's—it's it's what happens when you watch True Detective mm-hmm. one and start listening to a lot of doors, and then you become convinced there's a story in the in the song lyrics, and then you you write about it, <laughs> and then you create a, a a drug called Mojo Rising that makes it that is like the glue. You know, I know a lot of people have asked if there's ever going to be a sequel. And I'm like, nah, maybe. Uh, but the it's very hard to capture that same lightning,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, yeah. and put it in a jar. And I think that that for for what I want to accomplish, uh, I did. I wanted something that people would think is, you know, hey, I don't I can't tell what's real and what's not real. And if I try to do that, <laughs> then I can't do that. Because yeah. I've tried. I'm like, I'm going to strike it down and bring it mm-hmm. down to the page. And it's like, you know, 5,000 words later, you're throwing it away because it sounds stupid. Where it happened organically.
0: Or sometimes books just don't constitute a sequel. You know, if the story's, mm-hmm. if the story's told.
2: Yeah, I've always wanted to take and, and do, do something about the the brother that that junie was looking for the whole time mm-hmm. and do and do chances story you know i do have like the first line of the sequel actually written it, it deals with uh the first line is basically uh it, the one of the characters that we forget about skillet he's he's in the he's in a waffle house and uh the two guys next to him are discussing how to put mojo into a into an eyedropper and he overhears that conversation basically i just have a, a, like a ton of notes but i've i've never done anything with it and i was going to call it Immaculately stoned and yeah. uh cuz just a play on you know that but man i listened to the doors for a year <laughs> i can't <don't, laughs> listen to them anymore <laughs> i have to pick another band <laughs> you know? you i do love, it. i love the doors
0: yeah yeah you could make a uh, um A whole like uh, trilogy, and then the next one, uh, Crystal Ship.
2: That was a title that uh, that I played around with, and it's—I don't know, maybe one day, but I would definitely not try. I would—I think that the sequel would be a lot more straightforward. Mm -hmm. I've done the—is it real or is it Memorex? Type scenario so I think I would Try to do something you know Along the same lines the same you know Some of the same characters some overlap But something different mm-hmm.
1: I was going to say speaking of Things that uh writing You know and books We on the show every single Every single episode we always dedicate The first I don't know 10-15 minutes or so To talking about things that we're Reading right now mm-hmm. and things that we May be watching in fact so we kind of we, we play off both of those But uh so what have you been reading Bob like what's on what's on the agenda for you right now on the horizon or things that are literally on your lap reading?
2: Well let me show you because I yeah. have a bookshelf right here <laughs> and so I've got this and I've been I'm, I'm, I'm actually reading this on my Kindle but this is called Between Two Fires by Christopher Buhlman. This is a a really good book It's got a nice little bird from Published weekly. And I don't know if you're familiar with Christopher or not. He writes basically Mm -hmm. horror fiction. This book is phenomenal. I got on Twitter and was looking for medieval horror. Not sword and fantasy. Medieval horror. And it was really funny because I was looking for recommendations on there. And Christopher made a comment that said, does somebody want to tell him? (laughs) And I'm like, okay. And then, so of course, you know, a couple of tweets later, someone said, "Christopher Bull uh, you know, uh, uh between two fires," and I was like, "Oh, wait, you wrote that?" <laughs> you know. Then he, <laughs> he started talking, and uh, I ended up buying a copy. And this a really good book. I am I am savoring it because I'm studying it because it's set during the uh, the plague in France, and it deals with a uh, a disgraced knight and a young girl who can who can see angels and uh and of course you know being that it's set in a plague you know there's everybody is is uh you know religious and and all that and and but the, it's it's there there's a lot to it it's really really good and of course on kindle i am reading uh the living dead by uh romero and daniel Kraus.
0: does that thing even fit on your kindle
2: yeah, uh, I think I've got enough space for like a gap, uh, but yeah, it's it's a big book. I've been reading on it for about like two weeks now, and I'm at like twenty percent. Yeah, it's pretty big, and I've gone through like quite. A, I was like, man, I'm only at twenty percent. Wow, you know, but uh, I read a book by him previously called uh, Bent Heavens. And you can find it. It's on Amazon. It's by Daniel Krause. I've talked to to a few people who have said this that that they were kind of they're like, oh yeah, that's the YA book. So I, I can I can cuss on here, right? Well,
1: <laughs> it's so funny because we were actually talking about this, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we, because normally I think we've said I think we said what badass, yeah. I think one time, but we had Mallerman on. And so it's just become, and anyone who's heard him talk where he's just being himself, you're, you're in for it. And we weren't going to beep him out. But part of me was tempted to, cause I was, I thought, you know, that might actually not be too bad. It might actually kind of sound okay. But I said, no, no, not with, not with Mallerman. So no, there's no, there's no worries at all. We just let the, the people know and just yeah. let them know this guy's got a terrible potty mouth. He writes scary books. Come on, man. Yeah,
2: <laughs> well, I mean, because I, I, and I, I'm like, I'm one of those people that I, I do cuss a lot, except for, you know, when I'm on a podcast, I try to make it, if I'm going to use a cuss word, I'm going to make it effective.
1: Of course, yeah. You yeah. know,
2: and so I've had, I've had a few people, including Michael Wilson. I was, I was like, dude, seriously, they have trepidations because Ben Heavens is a, is a YA book. Okay. So here, here's, here's what I'm going to tell you unfuck that fast <laughs> okay <laughs> this uh, book yeah. the only reason it's YA is because the protagonist is a 17-year-old girl yeah. this book is brutal it will devastate you it hmm. is it is scary and, he, and it, it, when you figure it out, let me tell you how bad it is. When you figure it out and you realize that he's going to go there with this story and you know it and the main characters don't know it, which, of course, that creates what's called, you know, uh, dramatic irony. Because, mm-hmm. you know, something that the characters don't know you, you you, for a split second, you think, ah, I figured it out. And then you realize he's going to go there and you realize how traumatic that's going to be. And then you're like, "Oh, I'm I'm in the hands of a diabolical genius here who's just going to wring me out to dry." And you will not be able to stop reading. Probably one of the best books I've read this year. That that whole tactic,
1: right? You just talked about um where the reader knows, right? And really right. it's about, yeah, and it's about the the awareness of the people in the book and the kind of suspense that that gives the reader it reminds me the first time I, ex- I experienced that in a real intense way. I mean, where it just felt it in my gut was um, Oedipus Rex by Sophocles where, you know, the re as the reader reader knows from the beginning kind of, well, what's going to happen. And it's all about the discovery of how does Oedipus find out that he's hooking it up fat with his mom. <laughs> right?
0: like, oh, yeah. and, that, and
1: that he killed his own dad, you know, and it, it this is, Uh, thousands of years old. So if I'm spoiling it for anybody, it's their fault. (laughs) Um, And I
0: would say, look,
1: man, this ain't new, but, uh, but you know, and it's uh, that Aristotelian thing, you know, from his book, what was it? The poetics talking about uh, that, that, that kind of irony and how it plays out. And it takes, it takes a real genius to be able to do that in a, in a, uh, in a powerful way and in a a convincing and compelling way, because the
2: reader does know. It's harder to pull off in a book. I believe it's, it's much easier to, to pull off in a film. Uh, the classic example is uh, from an interview with Alfred Hitchcock, where he talks about how uh, he uses it because he will show two people talking at a table and underneath the table, there's a bomb with a timer and you see that there's only like maybe a minute left. And Hitchcock is like, so now I've given the audience information mm-hmm. that the two people at the table do not know. Not only have I done that, but I've also set up a timer. He goes, which creates tension. Mm-hmm. So now these two people are sitting there talking and the audience is screaming, get out of there. This bomb is going to blow at any minute. You just need to get out of there. And it's, yeah. it's powerful when you, when you, and when you, when you learn what it is and you see it in action, you know, you'll be watching a movie going out oh, dramatic irony, mm-hmm. dramatic irony. Okay. <laughs> so, pretty cool stuff. So Chad, what are you reading? Man? <clears throat> Well, I wasn't going to bring this
0: up because I, I brought it up like in the first episode and um, I, I'm a little ashamed that I haven't read it because I still haven't finished it because it's so thin. But I did put it down because of, uh, you know, I got I was asked uh, for some blurbs recently and I was trying to make the time to see if, if uh, I could do that. So I did set this down. But the reason why I'm bringing it up again is because Bob is here and this is horror. <laughs> uh, published this, yay! And it's actually not available. I'm glad to have this because it, it, this isn't available anymore in, in this format. Right, by the, this actual edition of House of, at the Bottom of a Lake by Josh Malerman. I'm almost done with it, but um, I, the I'm reading a lot of the same stuff. I, I, I fell into that trap that I mentioned before that I try not to do, where um, I start too many books at the same time. I don't have a problem if I'm, you know, short story collections, I'll, t- I take my time with those anthologies and short story collections. I, I very rarely read them all the way through unless it's like, I don't know, maybe Lansdale or, or Ketchum or something where I just can't wait to get to the next story. But normally I don't, you know, I'll take a year to read uh, one of those and then just, you know, read novel and then read a couple stories from this collection or antho and then go back to a different novel. But I'm trying to get my son to read, uh, Nakoda. And he, uh, he doesn't like, uh, to read at all. And I, I don't blame him. I think it's in the blood because I didn't start as a lot of people know, I didn't really start reading until I was, uh, in my early twenties cause I couldn't stand books. So if it wasn't Fangoria, famous monsters, or uh, you know some metal or punk magazine, I I, I wasn't reading it. So I, I made a stack for him. I said, because I said you're gonna you're gonna read. You're out of school early because this you know plague thing that's going on. So you're gonna you're gonna read a book mm-hmm. and then you're gonna re- read another one. So I got a, a stack out, and I can't remember all the books that I asked um, that I you know presented. I tried to pick ones that I thought he would enjoy. I didn't stick any of my own in there, but but the one that he ended up choosing was uh, The Hunger Games, because I had read that a couple of years ago, and I loved it. I thought it was a great book, the first one. I haven't read any other ones, but I thought it was a great book. It's taken him a while, but um, so I have to force him to, you know, like uh, give him some kind of... Because otherwise he'll just sit there and waste away on the Xbox. I've also been trying to get him to... I bought him a bass guitar like three or four years ago, and... Um, i've been trying to get him to play that again especially since his best friend who he spends tons of time with and he practically spends every weekend there and until recently uh his friend during all of this is learning to play guitar and mm-hmm. i'm like oh man you don't know what you're doing yeah mm-hmm. i said your your friend he's gonna start a band one day and they're gonna need a bass yeah. player yeah and mm-hmm. you have all this time on your hands and you're gonna you're gonna regret not learning that bass mm-hmm. so you should pick it up but he's just not He's not he's like, Dad, I don't I don't I don't wanna be what you wanted to be. I don't want to be a rock star. I was like So I'm trying <laughs> it's like one of those things where you like try to live vicariously through your children. Yeah, that's when and you, you put of- your
1: you put your pinky right there and you go, I'm just trying to teach
0: you to be cultured
1: and not to be not to be a complete douche clown. Say, so you need to yeah. learn the bass, bro. Come on, just well, learn I, the bass. I,
0: I he, you know he's at an age where he's like uh, you know going through that know it all thing and yeah. and I tried to explain to him so you get better at a video game at minecraft or whatever it is that you're currently playing so you get a little bit better at that or you learn more about the game essentially in the long run you're not, you're not walking away with anything you know and, and you're not excelling in a, in a a talent or a hobby or or anything to like kind of be proud of um so i don't know it's a losing battle right now man but i i I wish that and i know that a lot especially nowadays a lot of kids don't read on their own Mm -hmm. and that's that's sad
1: we're gonna get mad hate mail now they're gonna be like you old curmudgeons you um, guys are dogging gamer culture, man.
2: Like articles about how much money people have, have made playing game, video games. Ridiculous like amounts.
1: Ridiculous it is, amounts.
2: It's sickening. If I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it, it reminds me of that Mitch Hedberg joke. If I knew then what I know now, I would Yeah, yeah. Oh, it. I know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, but I don't have any kids. But I, I know my watching my sister raise her kids. She, you know, you you try to push, you know, kind of guide, maybe that's a better word. You try to guide, but you also let them do, you know, the thing that they want to do. To me, it's like a happy medium, you know, but hey, I'm not a parent. (laughs) You know, I don't don't have any children. And that's, that's probably a good thing. (laughs) You know,
1: know, I'm kind of in the same boat, Chad, in
2: a way, because
1: um, since, since quarantine, right? My son had a birthday. Well, he turned 13 and he wanted a not not a video game. He wanted a guitar. And this was kind of a cool thing because I didn't pressure him on this. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess in a way I do. I'm able to balance out the pressure because I don't have to do much of it at home because they go to a school where they're learning art theory and music theory and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so they're learning how to read music. (coughs) They're learning. They will learn how to write music um they they'll learn about the history of art i mean they're it's extremely uh fancy pants the school and so i'm i'm able to at home allow them to have a little bit more freedom well he wanted uh to get a guitar and it, 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 he was excited about it um until he mm-hmm. started to press his fingers on the strings and he started to realize a couple things number one you don't just strum around and wiggle your fingers. Like there's, <laughs> there are some chords and notes and the, the there are some notes that do not go together and that sound like garbage. And so mm-hmm. like he started to, to get this and it was hurting his fingers. You know, he hasn't really developed yet uh, any calluses and I play guitar too. So I, I strummed with them a couple times, but just wasn't as interested in continuing that. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that he will, especially as he gets older, at least he has. And it's a, it's a, a full-sized guitar right uh adult-sized guitar and Mm -hmm. so we have uh that's kind of been one of the issues the other one is that they've uh since we've been at home they've been reading much less than they ordinarily do and they've been wanting to play games uh way more frequently than they ordinarily do normally we don't allow any games at all until friday and then friday so during the week zero games and friday they get one hour Saturday, they get one hour and Sunday, they get one hour. They get like three hours a week of video games. And then we normally watch something as a family, some kind of a movie. So they're getting, you know, over the weekend, they're getting like maybe nine hours of games or something or nine hours of screen time, um, way more than that right now. Okay. So I've been kind of dealing with this with the kids and trying to get them back into reading and saying, okay, you got to read this poetry. And my daughter does, uh, for school and beyond that. But my son uh, not the one, the guitar, he's, he's reading Tom Sawyer, uh, but my the one Ambrose, the little writer and reader who normally ordinarily he's reading and writing like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him, I said, pick, pick one of these books, man. And I, I gave him a, a, a couple of choices and he, he started reading uh, metamorphosis by Kafka. And so I got this not too long ago. And then he read the first chapter as did I from this one. I've never read this guy before. Um, In fact, I got it. One of those, we have a a whole bunch of those. uh, What what are they called? They're outside. They're these little libraries outdoors. Mm -hmm. They're in front of people's houses and stuff. You know, I I go on walks around this area and there's like four of them. And so I just hit them up constantly. (laughs) I'm constantly hitting up the books, but I found this Mm. one called uh, crackpot palace by Jeffrey Ford. Uh, uh, Edgar award-winning author of the girl in the glass. And, uh, another one called the shadow year. And just, I, everybody says that is his, the prose is this beautiful, exalted prose. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying that, but I read blurbs a lot. And then I get into the book and I'm like, you're a chump, you know, you're lying to me. But, um, this one is amazing. This one, one line with this this part of this paragraph. I'll just read it, man. It's awesome. Says to my right was the angry surf, all iron gray and foam above brown clouds filled the sky like shoveled dirt as if the setting sun were being buried alive to my left. Rising above the tops of the tallest dunes that surrounded it was a most bizarre structure, a cockeyed monolith of a dwelling made of planks crafted in the shape of a human head. Its physiognomy was evident in the large eye like windows in the gable ears, in the white seabirds that sat upon its sloping roof like a close-cropped hair of an old man. The poorly joined wooden flesh of its architecture sagged, and the entire building listed forward as if deep in thought or nodding off to sleep. And I thought, homeboy is epic.
2: <laughs> and you know what that reminded me of? And I'm, I'm probably going to go out on a limb here. with That passage that you just read, mm-hmm. And I'm gonna butcher his name, but Jeffrey Ford. That passage that he ju- that you just read, he writes like Zadie's Law paints.
1: I like that comparison, man.
2: Yeah, because yeah. I got images of, of his paintings in that scene, and that that's that's beautiful. And that what book is that from?
1: It's Crackpot Palace. And I like how he starts off. He starts off midway upon the journey of my life. It's kind of a hearkening to, to Dante, you know, mm-hmm. but he's, it's just, it's so good. And I love it at the end. I mean, he's talking about, you know, all these images that he, he kind of wakes up and he finds himself in his home. Uh, if I remember right, yeah, his wife's voice is calling out, come to bed. And, and he said, and it startled me from my infernal work. And there's infernal here. Uh, mm-hmm. How could she be here? I wondered. Then the palace began to tremble at its foundation and the shifting mist lifted from before my eyes. I felt the snow and wind in my face and looked up to see that I'd left my study window open. A thin ridge of snow lined the sill. As I stood, the images of dreams and scraps of story that had buried me to the neck sloughed away like so much sand dispersed by the wind blowing through the window. I closed it and turned out the light. Shuffling through the dark toward the bedroom, I finally remembered where I was and what I was doing. And I'm just like, what a genius. <laughs> like so, so I felt like these they're they're not lying. The people who blurbed this and said that this guy has this exalted prose that's just gorgeous. I said, that's an understatement. That's just from the introduction. Mm-hmm. So I'm super pumped to to read this. It's a collection of uh of short stories. Yeah,
2: I'm looking at it now. The one I was gonna bring up is that he um he he wrote a book called ahab's return or the last voyage which is a weird fiction cosmic uh sequel to moby dick so uh that's and to me that's just like man that's probably just right up his alley Mm -hmm. but i know i know he has a new book coming out and he wrote a book called the twilight pariah which i believe i have on my kindle which i need to read lately a lot of authors have been putting their books on sale which i'm extremely grateful for but my, like the front, like two pages of my Kindle now, now every book has the word new. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, <man>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> because I'm just like, and I, and I have book bub. So, I mean, but I'm just like, you know, I'm just like, Oh man, it's only a dollar. It's $2. I'm buying this one. No, I own this one. <laughs> and then uh, I was going to say, you know, once your, uh, your, uh, child or your kid starts graduates from Kafka, that it's always a good idea to, to bring them right back into, to, you know, the real frame of things with some Thomas Ligotti. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. My buddy, John Bowden sent this to me and keeps bugging me to read it.
1: Well, I'm telling you, I just read two, I just read two selections from that and I had only read them the first time through. So, I mean, I'm hoping I didn't hope I did it justice, but it was, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, I wasn't anticipating, and actually, it's because of the, the cover. Check out the art.
2: That is really cool.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that Dada, what is it, Dadaism or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that.
2: But yeah, when you get a chance, pull up any of, like, Brzezinski's, like, landscape paintings. Between him and H.R.G. Geiger, they're my favorite artist.
0: Is that the one that draws the, uh, like, really, really
2: dark stuff i have something i could show like, you lots of because barnes and noble bless their souls they come out with these really cool hp lovecraft volumes and i'm hoping that you'll be able to see but that oh yeah mm-hmm. now this this particular volume here yeah, that's that's the that's the guy his name is um zedislaw beksinski i think it's called man with horn mm-hmm. but it also reminds me of uh T.E.D. Klein, Ted Klein's story, Man with the Black Horn. uh, That's in his Dark Gods collection. So now we're getting deep, Mm. getting deep into the (laughs) the horror. (laughs) Speaking
0: of getting deep, let's begin our hereditary chat. Shall we? Let's do it. One thing I wanted to bring up before we do this, as we talk about the, the, uh, you know, who directed it and who, who stars in it written by whatever funny story we were doing in our, uh, I think it was our second episode, the killer cell phone. Um, <laughs> when we were talking about who wrote, directed it, I made some remark about how, as far as I knew, the actors weren't in anything, uh, anything big or anything. Cause it's a, a really low budget uh, uh, B movie. And a, a week goes by and we find out that how just how wrong i was <clears throat> because one of the actors was in the lord of the rings and in the hobbit <laughs> and in
1: district I, 9 yeah yeah and in district 9 and i'm trying to think he wasn't he wasn't just in the lord of the rings he played like seven different people he was an elf he was a dwarf um one of the more prominent ones i believe he was I believe an orc. He was one of the creatures that were on the horses where they're kind of shrouded, almost ghostly looking. The um, I thought he just played a dwarf. No, he, there, there's a meme. Cause he, he, he said that he blends in and I responded back to him. He, he said that he's a, a, a chameleon. And I said, yeah. by the looks <laughs> of it, you're more like a shapeshifter. And I took a meme of him with all hmm. the different characters that he played in that it was like seven or eight different mm-hmm. things i mean he must have gone through makeup i mean they, they knew him <laughs> real well well a, you know
0: yeah that's crazy yeah because he had responded to a uh a tweet where we were making fun of ourselves that we didn't even uh see him and then we actually heard from the director too uh, uh not about that but he he just uh really liked the episode and was glad that he listened to it he mentioned that he normally stays away from reviews um Mm -hmm. his wife talked him into listening and uh he enjoyed the episode and and thought it was really good
2: twitter man i try not to even tag people and next thing i know i've got the director Mm -hmm. of the the film you know and so it's like a lesson learned from a long time ago if i'm gonna do that i say something nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's
0: how that's what we set out to do when we were doing the podcast we knew we were going to cover some movies that were going to be you know good movies but also some movies that were just uh you know basically created to poke fun at you know to point and laugh and that would be one of them but we we don't set out to like hurt anybody's feelings you know Mm -hmm. being creatives ourselves i mean there's a big difference between uh i've said this before there's a big difference between like stephen king puts a new book out and maybe you write a bad review about it you know i mean he he can handle that Versus somebody puts their very first book out and you're trash talking it. It's just, yeah, you know, it's kind of like punching down. I don't think we're going to have any trouble uh, with this particular episode. No. And and yeah. I don't even really want to give a synopsis other than saying it's a dark family drama. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah. But it is directed by uh, Ari Esther and written by him as well, and stars uh, Tony Collette and Gabriel Gabriel Byrne. What we usually do is, you can recall uh, what you thought of the very first time you saw it. Mm -hmm. You turn it on, within those first 10 minutes, like kind of like your thoughts, like, I think I'm going to like this, I think I'm going to hate this, Uh, this is not my thing, this is
2: wonderful, whatever. The first time I saw it, I waited quite a bit until it came out on blu-ray so i never thought saw it in a theater i didn't catch it on video on demand i wanted some of that hype to go down and i know it's a very polarizing film i know there's a lot of people who like it and there's a lot of people who hate it and i unabashedly love it i think it is probably one of the best films to come out in in the horror genre maybe in a decade and that's saying a lot because there's been like a lot of good films but First time I saw it, I realized that it was going to be a film that was going to have to be viewed again almost immediately because there are even in a static scene, especially you know you're going from a diorama to the actual scene,
0: mm-hmm. so
2: you're going from to from Annie's you know or her her art into the actual scene. Yeah, but there's there's a ton of stuff in the background that could or could not be part of it. You don't know this going in, but you know, hey, I'm I'm probably gonna have to watch this again. Within the first 20 minutes, there there is there is a scene that when she sees her her, her mother in the room, I was pleasantly surprised that that was not a jump scare. Like you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, the manufactured
0: yeah. mm-hmm.
2: cue to music, the music heightens, it jumps out at you scare. I guess, for all technical terms, you could probably call it a jump scare, but that creeped the hell out of me. I mean, it was effective, and at that point, right there, I was kind of like, within this is like within 15, 20 minutes, I'm like, okay, we got a guy kind of knows what he's doing, so I'm going to let him take me for the ride. Then we get into this kind of traumatic thing that that's happening. You know, any feeling guilt because she feels like that she could she should be mourning her mother more. Her mother just passed away. Basically what's happening is Ari is setting up everything and you just don't see it because you are forced to watch this drama play out in front of your eyes. There's little cues throughout the way, uh, especially when uh, Charlie and and Annie had the conversation where Annie tells him that, you know, she was your favorite or you were her favorite. Mm. And she says that, that, you know, she always wanted me to be a boy and Annie takes that as, well, I was kind of tomboyish. Golly, I didn't like dresses or none of that kind of stuff. And so, but th- at the time, you're under the belief that that's, this is part of a family drama. So I could see how some people would begin to lose interest about right there. Because like, oh, this is supposed to be a scary movie, man. It's not really. It's all this drama. Mm-hmm. You're being set up. <laughs> so, <laughs> by a very skilled person who knows they're manipulating We go to the party where Peter's, you know, he's got his, he's got his weed. He's got, he's trying to, you know, to get with the little girl who's, I I can't remember a name, beautiful girl, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. man. I I had no idea. I had, I had no idea what was going to happen. And Charlie, you know, she's thrashing about and everything. And and he, he, he sees something in the road. I actually had to go and read the script because it's so fast. You can't see what it is.
1: What, What was it? Was it the same thing as in the yard? No. No, no. it's a deer.
2: It's a deer carcass.
1: What was in the yard? I mean, I yeah, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to stop the flow there, but there was a scene at where the end of the movie. They're they're outdoors, and there's this thing, and it looks brown. It's not a rock, but it's behind them, kind of in the taller grass. I don't, I don't know. I, I remember her
0: seeing her grandma out there by fire.
1: It's kind of like room two hundred two. It's one of those things that that the person walking by isn't going and looking at this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yet for some reason, it seems like it stands out in the background. Not as, not as obvious as room 202. That's kind of a, that's a curious thing. Like what's that all about?
2: When, when, when she, you know, sticks her head out the window, he swerves off the road, hits the telephone pole, knocks her head off. Uh, wow. Okay. That, that really kind of messed me up. (laughs) And I remember looking at my roommate and usually like if we're, if he's watching a movie you know, or if I walk, you know, come home and he's watching the movie and I, I say, hey, I'm going to check out this movie, too. You know, if something like really kind of badass happens, <laughs> you know, I kind of give him that old look like, what's up? You know, <laughs> and he just staring at the screen like this. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> <That's about him. laughs> you know? I
0: think I think that the trailer that they put together was pretty genius, too, because the trailer kind of presents itself. You're not sure what the movie's about, but you know that it's has, you think that it has a whole heck of a lot to do with some kind of different looking girl, you know, Mm -hmm. she's different looking, you know, with her clocking noise and stuff. You're, You're not sure, but you think, so when she dies, I think that that trailer actually helps that, that if you've seen the trailer and then you watch the movie and then all of a sudden she dies, that, that trailer actually helps you're like, well, what's the rest of the movie going to be about now? What's what's happening? Yeah, the misdirect.
2: I mean, there's so much misdirection, even on on different levels than what we would expect. Mm-hmm. The scene that's right after that is the most painful for me to rewatch, which I've I've only sure. I've seen it once and I've rewatched it once. I will not probably ever rewatch it again. It's when Peter finally makes it home and he wakes up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Any other director would have come off of him and started following Annie down the steps, you know, down the front of yeah. the house, down to the car, calling back, you know, to her husband, getting in the mm-hmm. car, discovering what happened. But not Ari Oster. No. No. He did not have to show you. You just have to hear it.
0: From the point of right after, you know, she gets decapitated, at that point when he slams on the brakes, up until the parents are essentially um, well, particularly the mother is on the floor uh, just out of her mind, sad, that whole, all of that whole, you know, five minutes or whatever was probably the, the hardest for me to watch and the most disturbing. And that was at the point where that was the point where I was like, don't want to watch the rest of this right now, because there was something about the kid's reaction that I felt like it was so authentic and, and real because I can see that happening. You know, no in any other movie, he would have looked he would have looked back there, he had screamed and cried and freaked out and done whatever. But he was way too scared to look. He knew what happened. He was not gonna look. He tried to look for a second in the rear view and was like, Nope, I'm 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 I can't do this. And then he just drove off in denial and trying to pretend that he didn't want to deal with it. And that to me felt like uh, one of the most authentic reactions to trauma that I've ever seen in a movie. And that's why it hits so hard. And then of course, Tony Collette doing her uh, insane acting with, uh, mm-hmm. with her just freaking out about the loss of her daughter. And you're, yeah, with, with the kid showing he hadn't even slept all night and just waiting, hearing the footsteps, hearing her go, knowing that at any second uh, she's going to find, you know, her, her, her headless daughter. And yeah, it was, it's definitely a great example of getting much more out of something that you're not you're not able to see and the, and then there's that quick flash to her head which is kind of like i don't know if i'd call that a jump scare it was just more of a real disturbing moment i agree with the entire assessment of the
1: power of the the trauma in the scene where he's uh, he's awake all night i thought that was a powerful thing and that ordinarily you're right that they would the camera would follow the mom right as she wakes up and kind of follow her and then maybe not follow her all the way outside, maybe just be in the kitchen and then see her run back in real quick, you know, or something. And, mm-hmm. and it, that took me by surprise. But the one thing that, you know, I anticipated. I didn't anticipate that her, her head would get knocked off that way. I mean, that was, that was, <laughs> that's a scene in its own right. Okay. But I, I anticipated something pretty terrible because yeah. why have the son not call nine one one? Why get in the car and drive a very, very long way through this very remote place. He knows
0: that she's allergic to peanuts. So he knows you from, that. You mean from the party? I thought about that, but I think it's because he's going to get there faster. He's already carrying her out. And he's speeding like crazy. He's going to get there way faster than any ambulance is going to finally get there, grab her, and then and go. Unless, of course, they brought an EpiPen, which is yeah what
2: yeah. she needs. But the thing you have to understand, too, is that bong hit that he took was quite <laughs> yeah. impressive. Yeah, yeah, he right, right, right. The script. And he takes <laughs> a, a, a quite impressive bong hit. I think that's the words he used. So he's probably feeling the effects of that, which, I mean, th- there's still a little bit of a fogginess. And so you're not going to go, hey, I'm calling 911. You were like, no, we're going to get in the car and to go.
1: Did you see the close up of what the friends were watching on the iPad? It was yeah. a gu- it's a guillotine. They're watching yeah. somebody getting their head cut off.
2: I did not know that, but now I do. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. that the thing. Multiple viewings of this film, if you've seen Midsummer by the same director, and after mm-hmm. after you it's like hereditary kind of trains you because when you watch Midsummer now, it's like and it's one of those films I watched first and I you know waited a day or two and I watched it again because I knew it was gonna miss some things, but there's so much in Midsummer, that you're like watching the screen like this. You're trying, you're trying to get everything at one time. It's like if you could open your eyes even wider to where you could see all the details while still see the action. Mm-hmm. It's crazy because the second time I watched Midsummer, I had to look at the edges uh in the tops and the bottoms of the screens because he put so many clues in there. It's like everything is deliberate with this guy. It's like a puzzle. Which I mean, the the hereditary, the whole story's a puzzle. 20, 30, 40 years of watching horror movies and reading horror books there's something in that in my lizard mind for some reason that when her head got chopped off by the telephone pole by cut off something clicked but i couldn't put my finger on it Mm -hmm. this is on the first time watching i remember that i'm like there's more to what's going on than what we're seeing and so he begins, or he begins to continue to manipulate you with the grief counseling, Joni, the friend, the seance, and something about the seance didn't feel right. And at that point, right there, after like I said, and I'm a lifelong horror fan, I figured it out. She is unwittingly doing a ritual. She has been manipulated. We've been manipulated into seeing what we think we see, but this character has been manipulated beyond that because now she is actually performing a ritual, not realizing what she's doing. But I did—I still didn't know what the ritual was. So there's dramatic irony again because there's, there's manipulation on multiple levels. There's character yeah. manipulation, audience manipulation. And that's, that's pretty, pretty tight for first debut. It's-
0: One of very few movies, too. Um, Actually, the only one I can really think of right now um, where it's you almost want to tell somebody if they if they're going to watch it. Well, you need to watch it twice. The first time you watch it, you just watch it for the ride. You go along for the ride. You appreciate all the visuals and the creepy atmosphere and some of the creepy scenes. And then the second time you then you can actually put the puzzle together and watch it as it happens and catch on along and and that's what i did today it's not that i liked it better the second time it was it was like watching two of my favorite movies that are the same movie and and appreciating them differently Mm -hmm. each time and not you know both being my favorite viewing of them for different reasons you know the second you know this last time i was there for 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 putting it all together and trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what ari was doing and uh and just seeing, truly seeing the genius behind it all. And I can see why people, even the first time I saw it, when I watched the end, I thought to myself, there are going to be people who absolutely hate this ending. Mm-hmm. And then they're not going to like it. Because I will admit to being a little indifferent about it, but I but I think that had everything to do with the fact that, at, I mean, we just went through this crazy 20 minutes of, his mom going possessed and saw her head off and all this kind of stuff and all these, you know, really scary scenes. And then you go into this like ending where it's supposed to kind of be put together. So it was kind of at that point, it was a little hard to, I was supposed to jump back into cerebral mode. And then when I was just into that scary visual mode, but yeah, this, the, the, this last viewing was, uh, just as much fun but for different reasons
2: yeah that, that's how i feel i mean it's it, you get something out of it each time like one of the things i noticed right off the bat was the flies at the beginning of the film and it's like buzzing mm-hmm. showing the treehouse, and, and of course you know the camera turns around and shows the dioramas and and all that which are uh really i mean to me they're almost the dioramas or, or chapter breaks it's like every mm-hmm. single possession trope is in this film
1: and he pulls out so much from actual demonology oh yeah payment there's a whole lore about payment and it's funny because i went through after i watched it you know and i i wasn't down with the ending the ending is actually one of those things that um in part because in preparation for this i watched a whole bunch of different commentary including yours bob uh which was excellent okay. um yeah and that, and that podcast man mentioned the podcast Days of the fright. Um, and mm-hmm. they asked a really cool question about superpowers that I won't go into here, but it was an interesting answer that you had. And I don't know if it'd make you a superhero or a supervillain, mm-hmm. but the, uh, you, you know, so you got to go check out that podcast. But um, when I went, I was watching different uh, takes on this, some of them quite serious and and some of them so serious that they're people who uh, do the rituals themselves, chants and things like that, magical chants and invoking payment and talking about uh, the benefits of invoking payment even for hooking it up fat with ladies in the middle of the road when cars are honking at you apparently and all of this that's all there it's all online in fact there's a whole uh, genre of videos that i didn't even know existed on youtube but it was interesting to see how much of this was was true to form it was interesting to to even hear the way he talked about it and that he uh, the the director saying that he yes that he went in and he was studying it quite a bit but he got to a certain point where he had to get out of it he said I can't I this is I can't deal with this <laughs> like it's it, it's pretty dark pretty dark stuff oh, yeah. um you know but e- even the phrases at the end right the 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 kind of prayer or the I don't even know if it'd be called a prayer it's more like a, a an invocation right at the end um mm-hmm. that a lot of that wording in fact is taken right out of Uh, a book, what is it, man? The Lesser Key of Solomon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it the Goetia? I don't know how you pronounce that, the Goetia. Lesser Keys of Solomon the King, Samuel McGregor Matthews and Alistair Crowley. Mm -hmm. And so in there, I mean, it goes through and it talks about uh, a lot of this line by line, even down to the thing that was a strange phrase. And I, you know, not growing up with a lot of horror, uh, I wasn't familiar with the concept of familiars. Okay. The good familiars. And I said, well, what the heck is a good familiar? And it was funny because in the, in the pre-show we were talking about sounds in the room and you let your good familiars out of your room. You have cats. Yes. And uh, so your <laughs> your good familiars were, were were told to leave, but, um, but there were certain things in it that, uh, that I, I, I wish I would have thought of, you know, I'm, you can't, you can't really think of it until you see it. And then you got to reflect on it and then decide if you want to see it again. But, for example, the beginning, uh, it's it's panning around this room, right? And you, you've got all of these. It's the little world, right? Um, what was the phrase you used for that diorama? What'd you what's the phrase? You yeah, I heard, Is there, uh, that?
2: the actual little art things that she makes. Those are called dioramas.
1: Dioramas. So and there's dioramas.
2: I have a friend of mine who actually does that, but he does it for uh alien, uh, based off the alien films. He creates sculptures. Uh, the best action figures you have ever seen. And he creates a, the uh, diorama, of the Nostromo.
1: <laughs> well, like where it begins, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, the first room that it shows seems to be, is it the grandmother's room? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and the
2: grandma,
1: isn't it? The no, grandmother's it's- room.
2: Oh, it's, uh, Peter's room.
1: Wait a second. No, 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 no. The first one's not Peter's room. The first one, the very, very first thing, because it pans and it eventually goes to oh, Peter's right. room. Yes. So they the first room. the Hospice. Yeah. The first the first room is the one with the door closed that ultimately would be the the room in the picture, the promotional. It says keep out on it. And that's the mom's room. That's the room that they lock up. And mm-hmm. so the way they pan it around and stuff and they begin to show okay, I've, okay. I've I've heard somebody talk about it um and maybe i'm wrong but i've heard somebody talk about it questioning whether you know that the imagery of that and the symbolism of that is that um it's almost as if they are the work of other hands that there's an artist at play here that's not the family mm-hmm. and that the family itself is part of this this diorama right this the the little world and that yeah. these demonic forces these cult these occultic forces are what's manipulating and what's doing this outside of that, and it's almost kind of a a scene within a scene, mm-hmm. which it turns out to be, in fact,
2: right. And it, which brilliantly done, seamless. And I mean, and that's a, that's an Ari Oster thing. If you've seen Midsummer, uh, right, whenever the film starts, um, if you if you pause it, there's there's a a mural that is played across. And most people just, you know, and it's it's the mural down on the, on the Blu-ray down at the bottom. It says play, you know, then episodes and so on, you know, set up and all that. So, but if you pause it right there, just let it sit right there. And you look at the mural, you will see that it tells you the whole damn story.
0: Yeah, it does too.
2: Most people, they just go, ah, well, that's pretty artwork. Let's just watch the movie. But the mural <laughs> tells you the whole story. So basically...
0: It's like exactly. looking at a storyboard.
2: Showing us, are showing us, yeah, it's a storyboard. The dioramas are a three-dimensional storyboard of what's about to happen. And the whole yeah. family has been manipulated by outside hands. And to me, that's one of the scariest things in the world. That scares me to death. Mm-hmm. That cult, that, that concept of the cult, I mean, you, when you think about it, the word cult is in there. That means there's, there's more than one. There's followers. It's secret. It's cabal. And that stuff is is very scary to me.
0: Two things I noticed uh, on this last viewing was, and I don't know if this first one was on purpose or not, but I did notice that the areas where uh, um, that belonged to Charlie, that belonged to Charlie, were elevated. Her treehouse was elevated, and her bedroom was also elevated, just by like two three steps, as uh, uh, like as though it were you know, you take a couple steps up to a throne or something mm-hmm. very weird, very strange setup. And again, I don't know if that was done on purpose or if that was uh, symbolic of her, even though she was, you know, she was not a male. She was essentially being borrowed for, you know, temporary purpose and, and acted as, as payment. And I also noticed that her clucking that she did, um, she only did it when that spirit or that oppressiveness of payment was nearby. And if you if you watch it, every time that something is going to happen or that force or whatever is nearby, when she says funeral home, she does she does it. You know, and there's cult members sitting there. And then um, she does it when she sees her grandma in that fire out uh, in the weeds. And then she does it again at school when there's the that the bird dies. I think she does it then. She's constructing
2: the the little thing for the bird. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And then she does it again when, when, um, right, just right before they pass the telephone pole, she does it in the back seat. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I can't remember the other time she does it. I think the other times she does it are after she's dead. Right. When you, when, when you hear it. But I thought that was interesting. And I also, I was also trying to figure out, I know that there's something about uh, the, you know, everything like there was a lot of beheading in there. The mom gets beheaded and then the bird, uh, uh, she beheads the bird, Charlie herself gets beheaded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I I even wonder if it may have had been more to less to do with beheading and more to do with the, the mind and the, in the head itself, whether it be the mind or, or the head, because, um, when the mom gets possessed she's basically trying to destroy her head on the ceiling and then peter does the same thing in class he smashes his head on the um twice on the desk and i don't know if any of that's related in in all something to do with the mind or the head i mean it's not beheading but when people are hurt hurting themselves in the movie it it has to do
2: with Mm -hmm. their head if you look at the the whenever she finds the when she's digging into boxes and she finds the 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 photo album that shows Joan, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's also a description of payment, which is basically it's it's a big reveal because if you pay attention and read what it says, it pretty much tells you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Which, like I said, first viewing, I, that confirmed my suspicions that I had in the back of my mind. And I'm like, okay, yeah. so I know where this is going. But on the picture of payment that they have, if you notice there, that it, around his side, there are three hits. So there's going to mm-hmm. be three sacrifices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have a headless mom. We have Annie who loses her head. And we have uh, Charlie who loses her head. When Peter has his, basically his fit in uh, the classroom, that is when payment is trying to enter Peter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And then there's a scene right before that, that, that is, is really telling us when Joni's across the street while he's eating his lunch. And she tells mm-hmm. Peter to get out. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she like, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's exercising Peter. Peter right. out of his own body. Yeah. Now, who who is the woman? Because it seemed like there was two women. The, the, one that, the one that waves doesn't look like. Yeah, the one that waves at Charlie? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I don't know who that was. She's a cultist. Like the smelly no. guy whenever she's looking at the mom's body. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. a cultist. Everybody at that funeral is a cultist. You
1: said something, Bob, on another show, talking about the the possibility that the mom knew the whole time and that you know maybe she was suppressing this knowledge or that she was trying to avoid it that she she had her inklings or whatever because she's wearing the symbol too right and she's seeing the symbol but something chad brought up that made me reminded me of what you said mm-hmm. um, and maybe that this plays into it is that the mom she decapitated herself i mean she's mm-hmm. ultimately she's she's doing the action at least right mm-hmm. whether compo- compelled by possession or whatever she's the one doing this to herself and there was a there was a a another video talking about the the concept of beheading uh symbolically and it, and it mentions uh Carl Jung and it was it, here's a quote beheading is significant symbolically as the separation of the understanding from the great suffering and grief which nature inflicts on the soul and i thought Mm-hmm. That could almost play into this if taking what you said, the idea that maybe she knows and maybe this is like, you know, not only does she know, but she's witnessing it all come to fruition. It's one thing to know your mom's into some junk. It's another thing to to be experiencing this to the fullest degree of this great suffering and grief mm-hmm. that is being inflicted upon you by outside, by nature, right? The, right. Uh, the world around you, even supernature. Uh, doing this and that she eventually did the act of beheading symbolically to separate that understanding Mm -hmm. from the suffering and grief that she was experiencing.
2: Yeah. I think that, that she had to have known something. I think that her denial of that she needed to, to, to be opened up. And so the, the grief counseling was a way for her to open up. They, the cultists would have found another way to get to her, but they used the grief counseling. And I mean, like I said, it, it's, it, it all seems like there's something that Annie did, but I firmly believe that it's something that they led her to do. And then she is so caught up in her own life, her estrangement from her mother, that she, she unwittingly becomes complicit in this whole thing. She does the, all of this stuff willingly. She's been tricked, obviously but she's willingly had a seance in her house that she believes is contacting Charlie is payment. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing that, that to think that that's part of her in the back of her mind, she's like, you know, sounds like some of that stuff mom used to talk about, you know, rituals. Right. Stuff. Nah, 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 nah. I'm just going through a lot of grief right now. And I'd love to be able to talk to my daughter.
1: Maybe that's why the photo album, too, where she sees the photo album and it doesn't look as much as if she's completely stunned by the by what it is. It's more as if it's it's something she doesn't want to remember or that she doesn't want to imagine that her mother was into. It It wasn't like, what
0: the heck is this crap? Like,
1: you know, it's yeah at the beginning, at
0: the the very beginning, uh, even uh, during the eulogy, she says, and it's so easy to overlook when she says my mother. Uh, was a very secretive woman. Mm-hmm. She did secret rituals. And of course, we're not thinking, you know, oh, she's into the occult and she's doing legitimate rituals. We're just thinking um maybe quirky things she does throughout the day. What was up with the touching the lips, man? In the in the casket?
2: It was an anointment.
0: Was it? Because yeah. it
2: was
1: even even the ring was yeah. kind of like I, I've seen a, a picture of it since. And it's kind of, you know, it's got Interestingly enough, almost a cultic hand symbol, and it's got the, the using the middle finger and the way that the, the ring is positioned, it's it's that it's positioned so that you can see it's not it's not up high. It's as if the ring is to the right. side mm-hmm. and it's this weird blue stone. I, I haven't thought about it any more than that, but just to simply say that it's a really strange way for a ring to rest on a finger.
2: It's got to mm-hmm. be delivered. No right. all right. Right. One of the things too is this movie bars a lot from um, the exorcist in the fact that we have a possessed person and who basically we have Charlie, she's possessed payment goes into the one most vulnerable until a the ordained host is available. And so then we find this out later. What we're seeing here is a subversion of the trope. Cause usually if you think back to the exorcist, Reagan was possessed by Pazuzu and Pazuzu wanted to destroy the body. That was was Pazuzu's goal is I'm going to kill this girl. Whereas you have Payman who's like, I'm in this body. I really want to be in a man. So I don't really have to take care of this body, but I can't let it die until the right time. And then so when Annie's mom died, it was time for Charlie to die. Annie's mom was the beginning of the ritual. That was your focal point. Bam, right there. When that happened, the ritual began. The ritual ended when Peter woke up with the bandage on his nose. That was when, well, I say the ritual ended. That's when the possession was at its end. The final stage in that is is basically what I call realization. Realization that you are no longer who you are, that you have become someone else.
0: Well, he didn't get fully possessed until after he jumped out the window.
2: But that's also yeah. when he, he begins to discover who he is. So, I mean, it's like we're, we're seeing the beginning of the end. It's not just because there's a running clock. It's just that everything else has, has been fulfilled. We have mm-hmm. the three kids. We have or the, the three sacrifices. We have additional sacrifices, too, that are kind of like red herrings. very, very strange that uh, Gabriel Byrne would just happen to just burst into flames.
1: Yeah. There's the book
2: yeah. in there. You know, longest time I thought he was part of the ritual, but I don't now I just, I don't think he was. I think that was just collateral damage.
0: I was thinking about that today too, because it can, it confused me a little bit because um, both Annie and the audience feel like uh, she's the one that's going to burst into flames because she's the one who caught fire when she threw it in there in the first place. And then, and then she still throws it in there again. But now I'm wondering if, because payment took over the person who is most vulnerable, it makes me wonder if they get rid of uh, uh you know her husband rather than her because at that because she can be she became pe- uh, possessed immediately thereafter like if you picture like a meter and she has reached that meter of vulnerability, and now is the time to take over her completely and so <clears throat> when she throws it in there the the guy dies because she's ready to be taken over. She's taken over and then starts chasing Peter all over the place. And right. don't
1: they? Yeah, I, I thought I read somewhere too that what makes somebody most vulnerable is the, the the, one who is most afraid.
2: And a lot of people have said too that Gabriel Byrne was wasted in that part. He was not wasted, as in like anyone could have played it. You know, I think it was a very, very good choice because he is playing his most restrained that we've ever seen. And He could have played that so off the top crazy. He is capable of doing it. I've seen him do it, Uh, but he is subdued. He is Annie's rock. He is the one thing that steers her back to reality every single time. And so the only justification that we have for, for him to die is that Payman needed that rock out of the way. I used to think that he was part of the sacrifice, but I'm still going off the, the, the concept that, that you know, there there's only three and there, and they were all decapitations. Then I, at one time I had a theory that the bird was one and I was like, there's a decapitation right there. You know, we had an extra. <laughs> I, I would like to know
0: more about, I, 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 and I know there's something in there about the things that Charlie was making, uh, which also closely resemble the uh, the idol in inside the tree for it at the end Mm -hmm. it kind of resembles something that she would have made and I I would like to know the I I don't know um, the meaning behind those things that she was constructing and why necessarily why she chose the bird I don't know if it was just supposed to be symbolic but but I also noticed that after she took the bird's head she the last picture she ever drew before she died was not only a bird's head, but a bird's head with a crown on top of it. Well, if she know, was like,
1: possessed by Payman, yeah,
0: payment loves
1: heads. I mean, it's part of the symbolism, even in the drawing, you know, he's got the three would, heads and stuff.
0: I would argue that she was not possessed, but that she was oppressed yeah. by payment. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the only one that truly got possessed other than Peter at the very end
2: was Annie. No doubt. Mm-hmm. No doubt. And it's now that, now that you bring that word in there, that it, it really all just makes sense.
0: One thing I wanted to point out, too, before I forget, was uh, one of the things that helped me um, most appreciate this film and really be able to like get creeped out by it or, or just love it was the fact that um, it was easy for me with, my, to, with suspension of disbelief because I felt like the family was realistic to me because the appearance of the actors themselves, as just as people... They were not—they uh, were not gorgeous people. They were just very average-looking average people. You know, they were not. Uh, there's nothing worse than watching a movie or a television series where everybody is just just this beautiful model. Uh, it really pulls me out. And you know, a couple of other movies that do that that are so effective is like The Exorcist with Linda, Bla- uh, Linda Blair and Erl- Ellen uh, Burstyn. Mm -hmm. particularly Ellen, she's very plain Jane. There's nothing like special about her and it lends itself to um, the audience to really, I mean, if you're watching something that, you know, watching this beautiful human being, girl, guy, whatever, and they just like look more like a model or whatever, it's Mm -hmm. just easier to relate to somebody who looks like your average person.
2: Shelley Duvall and, and Jack Nicholson and Shining too. I see what you're saying too, because there's so many, especially a lot of television series, especially a lot of superhero series yeah. and movies. The cast is gorgeous, males and females. I'm just like, there's yeah. these are some of the most attractive people in the whole wide world,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: And you know, you look at The Exorcist, a prime example, Ellen Burstyn. She she's beautiful. She's a beautiful woman, but her, you know, she 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 does have a, a quiet plainness about it. Jason mm-hmm. Fuller, he looks like a Jesuit priest. Probably the only person who would have had any real star quality on this is Max von Sydow, and they had to make him look, you know, fifty years older than he was. And it's like Max von Sydow looked older in The Exorcist than he did in real life when he died.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is <laughs> so, true. But yeah, yeah. Kudos to Dick Smith, man. He, he was, uh, oh, yeah, he was amazing. But I remember I was watching a show called I had just started a TV show called The One Hundred. And I almost turned it off about ten minutes in because everybody was just like it looked like it was uh, some yeah. kind of like Miss Teen America, Mister Teen America. It was ridiculous, and 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 it really <laughs> pulled me away from the whole thing. Great premise of a show, but it was like, come on, man, these are models first, actors and actresses second. My That's wife why is watching I, that right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. but like yeah. I I really prefer films and and television with people who look. Uh, like everyday people and, and that they they let their performances and their, their charisma lure you in um, rather than the like people like Willem Dafoe and, and Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy. You know, those are all some of my favorite actors and and they they look like more relatable to me.
2: I mean, it's the same thing in Midsummer too. If you look at Florence Pugh, I yes, guess how you say. It. I mean, she and here's the thing: she's beautiful. She's a beautiful, yeah. girl. but she looks like someone's girlfriend. Yeah, know? she does. And she's you know, she's, gor- she's
0: gorgeous. She's <laughs> gorgeous, but she's she's gorgeous, but she's naturally beauty, and most importantly, her body is not something that you would see in a modern day movie with everybody needing to have this like ultra skinny body because she's not skinny. Not that she would need to uh, lose any weight. I'm just talking like Hollywood standards. Like you would never see her playing Wonder Woman. I'm surprised that more casting directors choose eye candy over uh, something that that your average person would be able to really relate to. And had they used beautiful people in um, no disrespect to the cast of Hereditary, but uh, beautiful people in Hereditary, it wouldn't have worked as well.
2: Now and here's the thing too, Tony Tony Coletti is beautiful. She's a beautiful woman that made her look the part of uh, you know artist. Yeah, that, that was yeah. the whole thing that we had right there. Is she's an artist. And I know I keep on bringing up Midsummer, but you gotta also understand that there's a big <laughs> theory that 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 uh, Florence and her boyfriend are in hereditary. There's a scene where uh, Annie is leaving the art store. And a young couple okay. from the back walk past mm-hmm. Annie. It's uh, the girl from uh, Midsummer and her boyfriend.
0: That would be interesting to do it backwards like that. So, Jeremiah, I know that that uh, we we talked briefly um, after you watched the movie, and yeah. that uh, I got the impression that you were a little underwhelmed by yeah. it. And, and yeah. we talked yeah. about if that was the fault of hype or uh or you were just looking A for bit. something yeah. something less cerebral and more scary because everybody talks about the the scariness of it. So what what would you like what are your to to try and wrap this up what are your um like overall thoughts and and of course your rating uh, your star rating up to 5. You know,
1: I stand by my my initial statement. You know, cuz uh, how did I feel when first watching it? You know what I mean? Uh, First 10 minutes is pretty slow, but it it also lays the groundwork. It's fascinating. I anticipated and see, this is where I made this. I may be a different, different breed is that I felt like a lot of it was predictable. I, you know, I, I can appreciate the psychological uh, manipulation that was going on, but at the same time, I was, I was not very impressed by the idea. First of all, by the son bringing the daughter in the car. You know, I've smoked a lot of weed, too. Okay, let's get this out of the way. I've taken, you're you're talking about huge bong rips, man. I've smoked some serious ganja. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, I would have at least called, I would have called an ambulance or something and said, look, instead of just carrying her out and putting her in and driving in the middle of the desert and stuff. So I anticipated that something bad was going to happen, especially because I saw the weird symbols and stuff. And there was enough of that going on where you see the weird symbols mm-hmm. on the on the necklaces and then you see it on the pole yeah. and you see it on the so i anticipated something bad right um and it's dark and they're speeding and she's almost dying but i didn't anticipate what it would be mm-hmm. but i anticipated it being bad mm-hmm. and i felt like you know when when the friend jo- yeah, jo- joan jo- yeah, yeah yeah Joni, the 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 friend um yeah. that when <laughs> when that began to happen um, the insist, number one, the, the oddity of seeing somebody that comes up and they relate like, hey, I lost somebody. I anticipated this is going to be a problem person. And then you see where where she's insisting, like super insistent that you, mm-hmm. you've got to come over and you have to see this. And then she was the one controlling the, the seance. It wasn't like, hey, I, I saw a person, but it's I know how to do it myself now. Then I said, oh, well, this person's obviously whack right Mm -hmm. so so this person's obviously super super wicked so when when there was the scene where she goes back the mother goes back knocks on the door and nobody's answering but there's candles all over i I was not at all surprised by that um i i was surprised by the ending and i know we talked earlier about whether or not we're gonna give it away or not um i won't i'll just simply (laughs) come to find out i didn't have to um to just simply say that the end did surprise me. Okay. I was surprised by how that played out. And it would be interesting now for me to go back and to say, okay, with this in mind now, how would I now see this? What were, what would be the things that I'm looking for now? Having studied this and having watched different reviews and heard Bob talk Mm -hmm. about it and stuff like that and heard you talk about it. Um, But I felt in a way that the ending was what is it uh Deus ex machina right the god of the machine like if there was a a, a devil of the machine right if there was a devil of this mm-hmm. um to come in and be the the demonic version of that the inverse I would feel that this movie is a little bit of that and that the devil comes in and swoops in this is what this is what's really going on folks this is it's all been a it's all been a, a magic trick right a, a sleight of hand. And so, but all of that being said, I still think I would have enjoyed it more. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I, I'm not going to rate it like you rated Unicorn City. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm definitely not doing that. But but to to say, if I wouldn't, if I would have taken what Bob said earlier, if I would have, I wish I would have heard you, Bob, talk about it, you know, just just the beginning bit of advice that, you know, you try not to let the, the hype get to you and you don't want to, you don't want to listen to too much of what people are saying Mm -hmm. because I did that to my detriment. And I heard the phrase scary. People would say, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. It's the scariest movie of the year. It's the scariest movie of the decade, whatever. And so when I went, I had an anticipation of an expectation. In fact, of the sensation that I would experience watching. And that sensation I experienced of fear and, and fright. And instead, if someone would have, if someone would have said, bro, this is the most disturbing, this is the most unsettling. Right. And there are scenes that will stick with you and Mm -hmm. you just can't get them out. Right. Once you, once you've seen it, you aren't unseeing some of this crap. Okay. If they would have just
2: left it there,
1: I think when I watched it, I would have walked away from it going, Oh yeah, that is true. So mm-hmm. my bit of advice, number one, I, I would rate, it, I'd still rate it almost a four. I I'd give it like just under a four, I give it a 3.9. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say that um, I would encourage people not to anticipate fear. And it, that way, if they are afraid, all the better. If they're just simply disturbed and not afraid, then all the better. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I'm hoping maybe that this will, will help to to, for people who wish to watch it and that i didn't ruin anything right and that i i didn't say the ending because the ending did do, you know did bum me out a little bit um and even the literalism of it that you know so much of it was literally pulled from stuff going back i mean it's impressive a little that the idea that somebody went back to the 1500s to to read a book about demonology and and the the hierarchy of demons and stuff i mean that's pretty that's pretty dope but I would give, I'd give it like a 3.8,
2: 3.9. Yeah, I would say that if I had to rate it, and I hate rating because you're trying to put an objective measurement on a subjective medium, but, uh, I mean, it's definitely, you know, a four four out of five stars, uh, which, which is, is strong, <laughs> okay? Uh, there are very few five stars uh, films that I've seen in my life. So, and which is why I hate ratings, because people's like, well, what's a five-star film? And I try not to use the word scary, because, I mean, I think that, that, that especially with this film, what's scary to me is is things that, from example, season one, True Detective, the fact that, that, that it was all part of a bigger group. That concept of it's all part of a bigger group is scary to me. Okay, because that's it, it. It has a feel of being real. Okay, a scary film to me is like Jaws. That movie scared the shit out of me. You know, <laughs> but Hereditary yeah. was brutal. It's disturbing, and so those are words that that I try to. But when you, you know, if you, if you got somebody who doesn't read or they just like movies and they think transformers is like the best film that they've ever seen, <laughs> dude, you know, tell them, Hey, you know, maybe tell them that it's a scary movie. Cause I've heard a lot of people say that, that, that it's slow and it's not slow. It's jam packed with tension and it moves at a very swift pace, considering all of the things that they're doing in this film the massive amounts of manipulation. It is moving at a very swift pace. There's nothing slow about hereditary. As far as the ending goes, it was okay. I didn't, I didn't need it. I'll say that. I didn't, I personally didn't need it. I think that there was probably some that did. I did like the presentation, but the actual very, very last scene, I, I, I didn't. I did not need the narration. I, yeah, I think it's
0: that the, that last scene is going to go down in history as being just one of those. I mean, definitely we already have our uh, love it or hate it kind of thing, and I think most people are a little indifferent about it. But it's definitely going to go down in history as being um, kind of a WTF moment, I guess, in cinema. But for me, the movie um, it's an easy five for me, and and usually fives for me are uh, anything that I count in a you know, like a top 10, 15, um, you know, horror film list or something. Um, but this isn't, uh, this isn't a five for nostalgia reasons. It's not a five because, uh, it's a five because it's, it affected me, uh, deeply, uh, it it disturbed me and it, um, it was unsettling and the, uh, it was just really, uh, well done, uh, and very, very creative, um, there was a lot of thinking that went into it, maybe question whether I wanted to keep watching it. Uh, you know, not, not, I wasn't bothered by the, you know, the gore and stuff like that, but just that the, the family dynamic when they would yell at each other and scream at each other and anytime Toni Collette would do her freak out, she was scary to me, you know, when she would be screaming and that look in her eyes and that's not, there was nothing supernatural about that. That's that happens in families this is a family being torn that's apart great. and it was hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the scariest part of the the movie for me. Yeah. Or the most unsettling. And, but yeah, it's a, it's a five and I, I would rank it as in my, you know, if somebody was like, well, what's your top five horror movies? I mean, I think, I still think it's scary, but um, That would probably be in my top five and in in my top two of of the best horror movies in the last uh, decade right up there with for me with It Follows, which is another movie that people either love or hate. But I I personally absolutely love that movie. But and your
1: son gives it a five. In fact, it's the pinnacle of all of all scary movies of all time. In fact, it's so scary. There's no other movie that can ever scare him again. So he's yeah. just done watching scary movies. This is right. Yeah. Course, it's over.
2: Right. Yeah. The last the last 10 years, it's yeah. it's in my top five. It's probably in my top ten. And I mm-hmm. that's why I hate the star rating system because I tend to gauge it against all films, mm-hmm. you know, in any genre. You know, I can't just, you know, is, now if I'm just, just gonna say, hey, in the in the horror occult genre, then I'm gonna give it a five stars, you know. Yeah. Uh, but in overall, in all films I've ever seen, it's, it's a solid four all day long.
1: I will say this. If there are two dudes, cause I, you know, I've, I've listened to, uh, what was his name? And I should have mentioned it. Ager. I could have mentioned a couple people. A, uh, is it oh not? yeah. On YouTube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ager. Um, and also Jay Dyer. Cause he brought up the comparison to the movie and I, I wanted to ask Bob if he'd heard it, but I forgot, man, if he'd ever watched the movie to the devil, a daughter.
2: No, I've heard of it. But I haven't seen it.
1: Yeah. Uh, a guy named Jay Dyer says there's a similar dynamic at play in an American occult novelist battles to save the soul of a young girl from a group of Satanists led by an excommunicated priest who plan on using her as a representative of the devil on Earth. Um, and so it's a similar different, you know, a boy instead of a girl or a girl instead of a boy. Uh, stuff like that. but Jay Dyer uh, from Jay's, from Jay's analysis, uh, uh, made the comparison to that. But if there are after watching those and hearing them, if there are two dudes that could convince me that this movie is better than my initial re- my initial thought, it's you two. Hearing you guys talk about it, forcing myself to think it through more as you're describing it, you've con- you've convinced me at least that, I don't have to be compelled to go and watch it again.
0: Jeremiah and I were talking uh, a, a couple of episodes ago about uh, the term elevated horror and mm. uh, how I didn't like that. And I think that it's sad that we use that term to describe a, an intelligent film, you right. know, something that, that is unique and doesn't, uh, and makes you think and doesn't follow a bunch of cliches and tropes and that we have to have a term for that instead of just a, a good movie. I mean, all those great horror movies from the 70s that they were came out today, they would be probably considered uh, elevated horror.
2: The elevated horror is the terminology used by critics who don't like horror to explain why they liked a horror film. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, they, they want to keep their yeah. they want to keep their elitist. Uh, uh, pretentious <laughs> status. Um, yeah. And, and yeah.
2: So and I have a very broad definition of what horror is. I mean, you know, I've, I've gotten arguments with people whether Bone Tomahawks a, a horror film or not. They're like, there's, there's nothing supernatural in it. Uh, I, I wasn't scared. I'm like, yeah, but I think Kurt Russell when he was in that cage at the end of the film was, <laughs> he was feeling yeah. horror, weird deal, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, Jeremiah. It, it, you know is there any
0: while watching this is there any uh any moral that you walked away from that, that 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 maybe we didn't pick up on that you think you could share with the listeners or or that you know anyone that haven't seen the movie or or give them another reason to watch it
1: Yeah dude if I'm ever you know in an attic and seeing dead people and seeing my mom cut her head off and then jumping out of a window and somehow surviving that only to witness what the son witnessed with the mother. <laughs> okay. And I don't want to give it away too much, but let's just say, man, I ain't following her up the ladder to the tree house, dude. I am booking fast out of there. <laughs> I'm getting out of town because whatever is up in that treehouse is not as awesome as whatever else is anywhere else. Um, And so, that would be my moral, man, because that was a bad decision for him. Okay, I don't think that was very wise And what his eyes were forced to see. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, definitely. Anything anywhere is better than in there. I,
2: I that think- is my theory. <laughs> Horror cannot happen until someone makes a bad decision. Hereditary is a film where the bad decision is made at the end of the film.
1: That fits right here, man. There's no doubt about that. So, Chad, if there was a moral
0: for you, um, I think that if uh, if I know that my house is fully stocked with ant traps and yet ants are still showing up everywhere, that um, <laughs> the naked people are coming, man, yeah. and that and I better start looking at all corners of my house because there's going to be T and A and dong all over. <laughs> 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 oh,
2: man. Oh, wow.
0: So, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the episode. Uh, you know, subscribe where it's applicable, like on the YouTube channel. Um, comment, send us an email at paleocheese at gmail.com. That's P A L E O C H E E Z E at gmail.com. we got Instagram pages, Facebook, Twitter, all the trendy stuff. And, I want to thank Bob for hanging out with us and talking about uh hereditary and just other stuff. Yeah. And make sure to go check
1: out his page at BobPastorella.com mm-hmm. as well as Facebook.com slash Bob dot pastorella, and that has two L's. Mm-hmm. And go listen
0: to this is horror. Yeah. Well, thank I'm y'all sure for having me.
2: This is great.
1: Now you can go back to hanging out with your good familiars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The Necrocastic On, where we blend horror and heavy metal for your
0: pleasure and ours. Featuring interviews with the stars of heavy metal, horror, and more. With host speculative fiction author and journalist Thomas R. Clarke, YouTube sensation Mr. Scott Reacts, foodie and metal historian, smoking ward ball, the Spartan Warrior, Sergeant Fury, Dan Roberts, and our guy on the couch, Uncle Skip. Because we all need a guy on the couch. Oh, and me, Charlotte, your virtual hostess. Available Mondays, wherever you find your fine-ass podcasts.